Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We pray, Lord, that you just uh, speak to our hearts. We thank you for just the people that are here. We thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit that is able to open our eyes and to speak to us, Lord. And so, Father, we come to you just in the name of your Son. You would continue to teach us as your church. And, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you have a Bible. I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29 through 32. Ephesians 4, verse 29 through 32. Paul has mentioned three sins that are prevalent of the old man. Since sin nature still resides with the believer until the day he goes home to be with the Lord. And they prohibit the believer from being free of any warfare. So Paul the Apostle prohibits these sins from being dominant in the believer's life. It was 25 to 28, he said the sin of lying, the sin of anger, and the sin of stealing. Now, when we didn't know Christ, that was our manner of life. We lied in many different ways, in different manners. In the world, they call them white lies, big lies, whatever. Lying's lying. Anger. We shouldn't even go there. We used to just fly off the handle for whatever reason. And stealing, well, we could always rationalize it because, you know, they don't need it. I do. Or they make so much money. And so there's always ways to explain and to work your way out of being at fault. Now, this is in view of having put off the old man and put on the new man, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and not sin against our neighbor. That's the context in verse 25. He's talking to the church body. The pattern will continue the same. You have the prohibition followed by the solution ending with the reason. And so he gives the negative, the positive, and he um, does this all the way through. Paul now continues in the sin of, um, he prohibited the believer to practice, and it's here in verse 29 through 32. Let me read. It says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. First, he prohibits the sin of corrupt words, verse 29. Secondly, the sin of grieving the Holy Spirit in verse 30. And thirdly, the sins, plural, with malice. And we'll see that when we get there. Let's begin with the sin of corrupt words, 29. The Apostle Paul prohibited the believer to speak corrupt words. Notice this is the negative again like we've seen before in the previous study. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Paul exhorted the believer to not yield to the old man. 
with inappropriate words. The word corrupt simply means rotten, putrid, and is used of a tree bringing forth bad fruit in Matthew 7.17. When we are raising our children and they say something with even in anger or something that's snippy, we get all over them because we don't want them to express their anger with words. And yet, that sin nature comes from us, the parents. <laughs> and often the example, if it's not controlled by the parent. The imperative command is in the present tense describing words of speech that are bad in quality, unfit for the believer, worthless. In other words, that's the way we used to deal with things. That's the way we spoke, didn't think anything about it. But the majority of those words are just worthless. Often a person will use much profanity or swearing or slang because he doesn't have a good vocabulary. Very limited. And then when you're in the world, you speak in such a way all the time that it doesn't even bother you. It's like nothing. It's just normal conversation. I remember um, when I first came to the Lord in 73, <clears throat> and then... Um, I was going to school and all that and doing different things and um and and then I went to work in LA Bank of America and and I had been away from the world to a set amount of time and different things I was doing and and it's weird when you go back into a worldly environment and everything and you hear all this stuff at first it shocks you because you've been away from it for a while and being in the Lord and and it's kind of it's kind of nice you know, because you're so used to it before that you you, did, you weren't even aware of it. Um, obscenities, abusive language, gossip, slander, all of this is implied here. Now, Paul is implying, notice, the believer has a choice on the words that he or she uses by putting off that old man and putting on the new man. You and I get to do that every time. Every time we're driving on the freeway, every time we're going to run the, get the green light and somebody runs a red light and almost hits us and... Or, or whatever it may be. You know, we, our mind starts going, our heart starts going, and all of a sudden, well, no, I better not. <laughs> because the old man's still there. So we have control of it. We, we get to choose. And again, it's by the renewing of our mind. Remember, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, and the renewing of our mind, the spirit of our mind, all happens at one time. It's not a one, two, three step. And so this is the ability uh, understood by the believer to choose between right and wrong, good and evil. Um, Jesus is very clear on this in John eight thirty four through 36. So we get to choose. Um, we, we before didn't have the ability. We didn't have the desire. And now we do. And Paul identifies the vehicle here, the mouth. Um, but the source is the heart. This is where it comes out of in its ultimate place. But it comes from the heart. Um, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, fornications, adultery, so on and so forth, Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen. It's interesting how often the world wants to use the heart as a form of sincerity or truthfulness. Well, you know, he has a good heart. You don't want to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk. You know what's in your heart? Not good stuff. It's all about me. 
The heart is the seat of understanding, the, the, where the place where the intellect, the emotion, the will gets, gets formulated. The evil that's in there. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34. You know, and sometimes, you know, people give themselves away, you know, they try to present themselves in such a way, and all of a sudden, you know, they're unguarded, and, 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 and they'll just say something, they go, and it's from the heart the mouth speaks. The reality comes out. Notice Paul indicated a person or people as a target by corrupt, worthless words. Wives, husbands, children, strangers. It's like throwing darts, throwing lances, throwing rocks. The believer is not to allow unholy conversation, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians 5.4 will tell us when we get there. It's the things that we used to do in the world, you know. We make fun of people. We tell dirty jokes. We give double innuendos and all kinds of different stuff. It's all over. That's the way the world works. Notice the Apostle Paul proclaimed then the solution. A believer was to speak what was good and edifying. But what is good for necessary edification. Paul exhorted the believer to yield to the new man's appropriate words now. The contrast is obvious from corrupt to what is good. Just the opposite. The word good, agathos, we've seen it before. And it means what is pleasant, excellent, and honorable. Even as we're raising our children, we try to teach them to be polite. Say, please, thank you, excuse me. Here, let me get that for you. Uh, to be gracious, to, to have social graces, to hold the door open for a lady, to whatever. Um, this is the, the word, what is good. We have noted before, it means what is pleasant, excellent, and honorable. What proceeds out of our mouth is to be good in the sense of benefited value and admirable. Um, often people that are kind of rough around the edges or coarse, if you are kind or polite, they feel kind of guilty. They say, oh, what are you Goody good shoes or whatever, you know what I mean? It just, it's almost like you, re, you react to it oppositely because, um, or you run over to help, uh, maybe hold the door or whatever, and they just, you know, and, and, and the very deed sometimes look down upon because of the exposure to their own person. Notice Paul exhorted the believer with a purpose in mind. It is other believers. That's the context. The purpose is the benefit of the person for necessary edification. The word there, necessary, means the need or duty for each believer. Edification simply means to build up a person. 
in the context of the body of Christ. He's talked about building up the body in chapter 2, verse 21, verse 22, 412, 416. So now in the world, we used to build up those that we liked and loved and good to us, but we just tore people apart that we didn't like or we really didn't know. I mean, some of us were vicious with our mouth. And... um And that's just the way of the world. And all of a sudden, now God has saved them. Remember, these guys are living in Ephesus. It's a port city. San Diego. (laughs) Okay, all the mariners come in. They've been out for months. They're coming in to party. You've got liquor galore. You've got a house of prostitution. You've got everything. In the port cities. You've got drugs. You've got everything. And these people are saved now. And they still live in this city. In this environment. And they're to be witnesses. For the Lord now. The purpose of our words. Is to promote the spiritual growth of others. As the need arises. Or the opportunity is made. Available to us. We shouldn't have to be told to do what's right or to help somebody if we see the need. Proverbs 15.23 says, A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good it is. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should... Know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as to learn. That our ear would be so tuned to God as we read, as we study, as we pray, as we wait upon him, as he speaks to us. That we're tuned to his words. Those things that are pleasant to our ears, to our heart. And that our words are pleasant, pleasing to the Lord himself. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the reason every believer is to speak what is good and edifying there at the end of verse 29. That it may impart grace to the hearer. The expression goes beyond the purpose just mentioned. It expresses the nature of the words, those sourced in God. Grace, as you know, implies sweetness, charm. Loveliness, characterized by goodwill, loving, kindness, and favor. Unmerited, that which God has imparted to us. And the expression indicates the individual is able to impart the grace to the hearer. Because God never asks you or myself to do something that he doesn't first equip me to be able to do. We as parents never ask our children to do something that's beyond their capacity. When we ask our children to do something, we know they can do it. And we know that when they do it, they'll feel good about themselves. They'll see their progress and they'll have more self-confidence. This is the same with the Lord. So when God says, you know, I want you to do this, then he has enabled me. But if it's something I don't want to do, I say, well, I can't do that. 
just like when we were children, when our parents knew we could do something, they asked us to do, oh, well, I, I, I don't know how, you know, I can't do it, you can do it. We just don't want to do it. Having received grace from God by kind and beneficial words, they are not able to do, or they're now able to do the same towards each other. Because we received them from God, now we are children of God, and so he's our example. And the very fact that I have been a recipient is all, all that I need to be one to impart to others. The very same thing. Grace contains the idea of kindness bestowed on one who does not deserve it, like you and I. Freely you have received, Jesus said. Freely give, in Matthew ten eight. You remember Isaiah recognized that he was a man of unclean lips, and God cleansed his lips in Isaiah six five through seven. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he got a cherub to take a coal from the altar and touch his lips. I have cleansed you. And how God has cleansed so many of our mouths in the world. Whether it be profanity, whether it be gossip, whether it be whatever. What a joy it is. The tongue is one of the most deadly members in our body. The beast behind the ivory cage. He gave us two doors, the ivory and then the lips. But it still comes out, doesn't it? James, as you know, is particularly interesting in the tongue. And he says, if any man among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless, James 1.26 Even so, the tongue is a little member, and it boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles, James 3, 5. It just destroys. A little flame, just as a match, wipes out 150,000 acres. Little tongue. And the tongue... It's a fire, world of iniquity. A tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. James 3, 6. The devastation. Stop and think of the things that you said to some of the people you went to school with, someone you didn't like. Or maybe when you were a non-believer and married to your wife or your husband. Or even to our children. And it's so destructive, our tongue. James 3a says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, <clears throat> full of deadly poison like a serpent. Venomous. And, and <clears throat> it starts so young. I mean, you know, you pretty little girl, oh, a little picked up, and all of a sudden you just get like, and you just, I mean, just like a little snake. Just like flipping a switch. 
You see the face go from a smile to a frown. The eyebrows just cringe together and the juggler gets just crazy. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, 1 Peter 3.10 says. You see, the words we speak have such a destroying effect or building up effect on people. Our husbands, our wives, our children. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Attractive. Valuable. For the situation or occasion... Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought obligation to answer each other. Colossians 4, 6. Always sourced in the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Colossians three sixteen. When you speak kind words, it kind of disarms people. You know? Somebody's kind of serious and all that, and they're just kind of grumpy, and you go, hey, is that your car? Yeah. He says, man, I really like those rims. You go, oh, wow, yeah. It just, and it kind of just, it, it, it melts a person. It kind of just puts them on, you know, they just go, okay. It's just weird. Or, and some people can't handle it when you, you just say some kind. They go, What? It's just, and that's even in the culture from state to state. I mean, in California, it is hostile. I went up to Idaho, and I was so disarmed. People are so kind. They're so nice. You almost feel weird. What do they want? The believer is not to let corrupt words go out of his mouth, but good, edifying words full of grace. Notice secondly, comes verse 30. The sin of grieving the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul prohibited the believer to hinder the Holy Spirit. This is the negative. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Paul exhorted the believer to not grieve the Holy Spirit. And the word grieve simply means to be in sorrow, pain, or to offend. It is used of Peter being grieved when Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me in John twenty one seventeen? after he denied him? Do you love me more than these? It's used of the sorrow of those loved ones who died without hope in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I would not have you to have sorrow as others have no hope. There are many things that bring painful grief and sorrow to the Holy Spirit. We can make a whole list of them and trace it through the scriptures, but the context here is very specific. The unholy, corrupt, and putrid words by the believer and the other things that preceded, verse 25 through 32. He's dealing with these issues specifically. The Holy Spirit is hindered by words in the work of edification that he's desiring to do through me in the lives of others. 
if I choose to use corrupt words, selfish words, whatever it is. Now, we're not talking about psychology of saying two good things for every bad thing or something. We're making a distinction what builds you up in Christ and what does not. These are the things that bring painful grief and sorrow to the Holy Spirit. The unholy, corrupt, putrid words. The Holy Spirit is hindered. He wants to do the work in me first and then through me to others. And I can limit the Lord in that. Notice the apostle exhorted the believer by giving evidence of our intimate relationship here with the person of God. For this is a personal hurt and sorrow. You cannot hurt someone except a person. Personality. So the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a power. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity. Only those having the Holy Spirit are His. Romans 8, 9 says, Only those who are His can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and here. <clears throat> the non-believer resists the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51, Stephen tells us that. In fact, Isaiah 63.10 said this, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Talking about the people of God, Israel. In the wilderness and other times. Paul exhorted the believer to not grieve the third person of the Godhead here. He's a person. It's like I said, not a power, not a force. People are grieved. The Holy Spirit is God, even as Peter attested to Sapphira that she had lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5. Jesus spoke of the comfort of the Paracleo, the one to come alongside of the same kind as he to bring to their mind his words, guide them, direct them, teach them in John 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth, just as Jesus is called and calls himself truth in John 14, 6, verse 17. Um, chapter 15, 26, and 16, 13. The Spirit of Truth, Jesus calls himself truth. The Holy Spirit is found 11 times in this epistle. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 13. Go home and find them. <laughs> 13 of them. The Holy Spirit's all over this letter. Now notice the Apostle Paul proclaimed the solution again for the believer to not hinder the Holy Spirit. This is the positive. By whom... You were sealed. Paul exhorted the believer to remember that God had made them his own. The word seal means to set a mark, particularly with a seal or some imprint of identification. That's what a seal is. This has been stated already in, as a deposit or pledge or an earnest down payment. The Arabon, 
It can even be translated the engagement ring in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Paul speaks about and mentions it again in 2 Corinthians 1, 22. It is use of the seal on the tomb of Jesus in Matthew 27, 66. Rome put their seal on there to make sure no one rolled away the stone and stole the body. Letters would have seals, and if that seal was broken, they knew it would be, was tampered with. Seals were used in many different ways. A ring, hot wax, you seal your letter. Not only has the seal, but it's melted together. It has to be broken, and now you know it's tampered with. A seal would be put on the baggage and the cargo to identify ownership. Remember that Ephesus <clears throat> is a port city, much commerce. And the master would send his servant down to pick up the cargo. And they would be looking for their master's seal. And they would gather them all together and take it back to him. They would claim the rightful ownership of that merchandise or cargo by the seal of their master. Notice Paul exhorted the believer to always recognize they are the property and possession of God by this mark. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, when we were in the world, we, we did what we wanted with this body. It was my body. I did what I wanted with it and to it. Now I realize it's the temple of God. I'm to honor God in every way. We were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.19 tells us. Not corruptible things of silver and gold and the traditions of our fathers. We are called <clears throat> the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5.26 and 27. All these things point to his ownership of us. Ah. Uh, we belong to him. Just as a wife belongs to her husband. Many people take offense today because of the women's live and all that. My wife truly belongs to me. I belong to her. And we don't take offense to that. We are glad about that. Just the way we are to be given to the Lord completely. Now notice, the Apostle Paul declared the reason every believer is sealed in verse 25 at the end there. For the day of redemption. Paul exhorted the believer about a future day of great hope. This hope began in the past. The word redemption has to do with the purchasing of liberating a person. Jesus made the effective payment on the cross for the sins of the world in order to set sinners free through repentance and salvation by the grace and faith that they exercise. Buying a slave out of the slave market for the purpose of giving them freedom. 
This hope was waiting for its future expectation. It happened in the past when they repented. Now they're waiting for the future expectation. This will take place at the rapture of the church. When God removes the church from this earth prior to the seven years of tribulation and great tribulation that will come upon the earth. The dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up, harpazzled with them suddenly, violently, in the air to be with our Lord and our loved ones forevermore. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one tells us. The reference to them in Thessalonians is the dead bodies of the saints and we will be harpazzled with them in the air. For those believers who have died, their bodies have been put in the grave. Their spirits instantly present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. And when the Lord raptures his church, then we who are alive will be harpazzled with them. Them, the dead bodies, will be raised to be reunited with them in the clouds as we are being transformed going up. And so we will be with the Lord forevermore. You see, Paul, in exhorting them about the day of redemption, pointed to the future day when the believer will be completely free in a glorified body. The old man won't exist any longer. Won't be no warfare. The old sin nature will be done away with. This corrupt world will not be a problem to me. The day when Christ will gather all who belong to him both in heaven and on earth, ending the church age, Ephesians 1.10 told us. Right now my problem is that the world, the flesh, and the devil drive me crazy. They affect me. I have to resist. I have to put off the old man. I have to put on the new man. I have to present my body and let me sacrifice to prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. I have to look to him, depend upon him, wait upon him, walk with him. Ask him to empower me. Ask him to give me wisdom. Ask him to guide me, direct me. Grieving the Holy Spirit is like ignoring the pain signals that your brain is sending to a certain part of your body. Your gallbladder is about to burst and you've been having pains, but you keep ignoring it. It's already the third day, but you don't want to go to the hospital. A simple procedure for today. But if you ignore that pain, which is a warning something is wrong, and you don't correct it, it'll kill you. The same with sin. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's pain that we bring to him, but we sense it also out of fellowship with God. And sin destroys. The scriptures say clearly the wages of sin is death. Sin kills. Absolutely. 
There are many other ways we can grieve the Holy Spirit besides our words that have been mentioned here by our thoughts, our attitudes, and our self-righteousness. By our not depending on the Holy Spirit or by living a life of duplicity, hypocrisy, or like a Pharisee. Now, we are never talking about perfection because no one is perfect. But listen to 2 Peter three seventeen through 18. Peter says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You see, the preventative to not grieve the Holy Spirit are clear in Scripture by growing, developing, and maturing in the Word of God. By being filled with the Holy Spirit continually. We'll get to that in Ephesians 5.18. By praying to the Lord for everything and anything. By gathering together with the saints, the church. By being the church, not just going to church. These are some of those things that are very, very clear. And those that do these things, they, 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 they bring great protection to themselves and great benefit to themselves and their families. When we don't do that, then we bring great destruction to ourselves and our families. That's why I just overjoy when I see so many of you come with your husband and wife together and the kids on midweek or Sundays and you know and, and, and you men are being the spiritual heads of your home directing and guiding your wife and your children and protecting them and, and just being there for them. What a protection, what a blessing. Your children don't even know what a blessing uh, they're having and the protection and the benefit and all that. And it's happening. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise your youth. He's talking to Timothy. But be an example to believer in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Wow. The believer is not to commit the sin of grieving the Holy Spirit. Third and last, verse 31 and 32. The sins, plural, with malice. Notice the Apostle Paul prohibited the believer five sins driven by malice. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Paul clusters together five sins like a summary statement of what is prohibited in the life of the believer, qualified as being with all malice. Ill will. The list is not intended as an exhaustive list, as you know. Many other things could be added. But all five sins are under the imperative command. Put away from you. Get rid of them. All five are described by the one adjective, all. 
meaning any and every sort of the particular sin name is not to be practiced any longer. The error is passive indicates at the point of their conversion. The old man was put off and must be continued to be reckoned dead, putting on the new man by the renewing spirit of their minds, as verse 22 and 23 has stated us. Too many people live in Romans 7, and they try to claim that's legitimate warfare. No, it isn't. Romans 7 is willful defeat because you're still trusting in yourself, thinking you can do it, or you just want to be carnal. You must move on to chapter 8, life in the spirit. All you find in Romans 7 is I, I, I. The middle letter of sin is I. Paul exhorted the believer to not yield to these five sins. All bitterness means every and any long-standing resentment which refuses reconciliation. This will kill a person, literally. The bitter resentment that lies in a person's heart and mind will just release toxic chemicals in our body. Ulcers, cancers, high blood pressure. You make your list. Many are defiled by bitterness, as we've seen in Hebrews twelve fifteen. Because when you're bitter, nothing looks good. When you're bitter, all you do is complain. When you're bitter, all you see is the negative. Life is not very good, not very joyful. And sadly, the other people who are with you have to suck it up and bear your ugliness and mine when we're in that position. All wrath, because the article goes with every one of these sins. All wrath means violent outbreaks of passion that is quickly ignited and subsided. Exasperations. In the world, you just can't control your temper sometimes. And we use our nationality for, well, I'm Italian or I'm Mexican, whatever it is. It's all junk. And if we're in the garage and we just tighten this bolt and we strip it, and, oh, we just blurt out some good ones and we just throw this tool across the garage and it goes through our front windshield and then we even get madder and you know you know how that goes all anger same word that we saw before in 26 or gay it means long lived habitual and chronic as we have noted and in 26 it was used for righteous anger that can be moved into unrighteous anger if we cause it to sin. All clamor means to yell, 
loud quarreling to assert oneself and one's all right. This used to be a characteristic of men all the time. One has the biggest mouth and he's big so he tries to bully people. It doesn't make it there how big you are. But that's the way we do it as men, right? We bully people. But now women do it too. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's that, that asserting yourself to intimidate, to put fear in other people, to manipulate them, to have them do what you're going to do, either by a look or, or, or whatever it is. It even works in parenting, and there's nothing wrong with that to a certain extent. When I was growing up, we were at a store, we were at people's house or in public or something, and we start acting up. My dad just, he'd look, that's it. He didn't have to say a thing. Once we made eye contact, it was over. Those days are over today. <laughs> Kid sees his dad mad dog him. He says, "Well, you want a piece of me?" <laughs> Everything's out of joint today. It's reversed. All evil speaking, blasphemia is the word. It's used as speaking blasphemous about God or slandering man, cursing, putting a curse or damning somebody or saying. Just horrible, malicious things. It's used for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now notice all five sins are under an imperative command. Put away from you all these sins. And then Paul qualified these five sins that are not to be present in their lives, in conduct and behavior as Christians. He says, all malice. So the phrase all malice means malignity and ill will, as I said at the beginning. It's not only all clamor, all this, all that, but with all malice on top of that. This is the old man's nature and his character. Man wants to paint such a beautiful picture of man, how good he is. The only problem is that definition is an ideal that doesn't exist in his life. Nobody is what they have painted man out to be. All we have to do is look to our history of any nation, any period in time. The wars. The theft. The maliciousness, the slander, the betrayal, the insults. There's plenty of stuff out there that just denies what man portrays himself to be. Though the old man is ever present, he does not have to reign or dominate the believer's life any longer. What an incredible blessing that is. That we don't have to live a form of death while we're alive. That cannot produce anything good. But if we live a death while we're alive in Christ, then we get to live abundantly in everybody else around us.
The phrase speaks of an attitude of a person, the intent being to injure and to harm an individual, all malice. The evil plotting and planning is constant. Everything is, you know, I'm going to get you. You wait. I never forget. I'll get you. We all remember. We can identify. The amount of ill and harm is never enough. Unsatisfied. You do something to get even and oh, yeah, yeah. And then after a couple hours or a couple of days, you know, that, that wasn't enough. Start thinking about him or her again or whatever and then you start plotting again. Hmm. The five sins are bad enough in and of themselves. But when a person is driven by a vicious attitude to injure, harm, and destroy a person, it magnifies the evil. And there is so much of that going on today in our streets, in our cities, in our homes. Because we have turned our back on God. There is no conscious of right and wrong. There is no sense of common sense or fear. There is no fear of even the authorities any longer because they minimize the crime. You plea bargain, you get off on good behavior or because the jail is crowded, they're going to let you out. Wow. You see, malice is relentless and uncompassionate. It demands its pound of flesh and it will not go away until it gets it. The Apostle Paul proclaimed the solution to the believer yielding to bitter malice. This is the positive. Listen. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So the believer is to become benevolent to one another by putting on the new man. The word kind means pleasant, fit for use, and gracious, being children of God. The believer is to become sympathetic and have pity towards one another. The word tender-hearted means compassionate, sympathetic. Finally, Paul Peter says, All of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brethren, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Notice the believer is to become forgiving to one another then. The word forgive simply means to put away. This is the solution to the very first one and everything else, but especially the first one, all bitterness. You will never get rid of bitterness until you forgive. And if you don't, 
bitterness will kill you. It won't hurt the other person most of the time. Unless you live with them and they know. And you make their life miserable. But the other person can care less about your bitterness. It's going to hurt you. Not them. Jesus told Peter. After Peter said, well, I think you should forgive seven times. I think Peter was playing it up. Because I would have said two. And I couldn't even do that. But Jesus said seven times 70. 490 times. Does that mean after 491, that's it? You're out, you're, you don't have duty? No. He's trying to, I hope you get the message. When people, you're supposed to be like your Lord and Master. You see, the Apostle Paul declared the reason every believer is to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ also forgave you. This nails everybody. This just puts everybody on their face because forgiveness is impossible on the human level. Oh, we can say, oh, you know, you, oh, I'm sorry, I spill, I, I spill some coke on the, oh, don't worry about it. A little thing like that, who cares? But I'm talking about big stuff. <laughs> I'm talking about things that cost us, things that, that just tweak us. There's no way. Paul exhorted the believer to reflect on the grace of God over their own life. God had forgiven individually, every one of them, for all their sins. The number of sins didn't matter. The nature of the sins didn't matter. He bore our sins and became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then Paul exhorted the believer to be as gracious to others as God had been gracious to them. Look at the word just. It means in proportion or to the degree that you were forgiven. Man, I'm dead. I can't do it. That's what God wants to hear for me. Lord, I cannot forgive this and I, I need your help and I'm going to have to trust you for it. You're going to have to help me. I'm going to have to die to self every time. You see, there comes a time when something has happened so horrific that if you don't, it'll kill you and everybody else around it. And until you say, it stops with me, I absorb the entire cost. It's done. Until that happens, you will not have peace and joy in your life. You have poison and destruction. Wow. Colossians 3.13 also confirms this. You see, the believer in Christ is a debtor to forgive, for no one will ever sin against you as much as you have sinned against Christ. And he never mentions it. He never rehearses it in your mind. He buries it in the deepest ocean and never mentions it again. That's what forgiveness is. Wow. Jesus told his disciples right after he taught them how to pray. The benefit and consequence of forgiveness. He said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, not sins, trespasses, willful things. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father 
forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. The parable of the evil servant who was forgiven everything, millions, and he took the, his servant friend of owing him just pennies and threw him in jail. Matthew 18. You wicked servant. Should you not have forgiven him? Yes. Romans seven eighteen says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. If you're looking in you, you're never going to find it. It's in Christ. The problem of sin is not just certain things that are wrong and offensive to God, but they are destructive first to our lives and then to others. Bitterness again destroys our joy and love for life, believing we have been wrong. Wrath and anger destroy us from the inside and then our witness on the outside. Clamoring makes us big mouths, intimidating and demanding our right and our way. Evil speaking dishonors God and man by abusive and disrespectful language so that people do not respect or honor us. Wow. Listen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, nor inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. What a gracious God we have. Wow. You see, the only solution to a life of sin on whatever level is to go to the Lord Jesus and have him deal with our hearts. The fall brought sin nature on the human race. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of man's heart was evil continually. Genesis 6.5 The degree of man's depravity in sin is only known by God. The heart is deceitful, desperate, wicked above all things. Jeremiah 17.9 The origin of sin is the heart. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, adultery, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. Matthew 15, 18 through 19. So the solution for a sinful heart is the word of God. Listen. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharpening two edges sword, piercing even to the vision of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 The believer is not to compound their sin with malice. Paul has given to us the remaining sins that he prohibits here to the believer to be practiced. The believer is not to let corrupt words go out of his mouth, but good, edifying words full of grace. The believer is not to commit the sin of grieving the spirit. The believer is not to compound their sins with malice. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you would continue to deal with us, Lord, as we look to you. And so we so thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, how you have transformed our hearts. It's affected the way we think, the way we speak, the way we walk and we live, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the Internet. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then God has brought you here to repent of your sins. Right where you sit, you can ask him to forgive you. If you believe Jesus Christ as God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, the Bible says you can be saved. And he will make you whiter than snow and a child of God. This is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to watch.